You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, just our normal set of reminders to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. Continue to leave those Apple reviews. You know, guys, every week I get like an email from the podcast world that tells me where we are. You're not doing your job. I kid. But seriously, it really helps us grow the show. Uh, it helps us, you know, get more viewers, more more looks, more attention around it. And uh, any fans of the show can tell you that how much they love hearing these stories. And we want more people to hear them each and every time out there. So please go leave us an Apple review. Give us five stars. Tell us why you love the show. We genuinely appreciate all the love and support. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. Um, you can see all of our Hazard Ground episodes right there on YouTube. Uh, if that's your preferred method of watching. And if you would also like to watch them, you can download the Killcliff TV app. Our partners over at Killcliff who help us put this whole show together. Don't forget to go to killcliff.com and check out all of your great Killcliff flavors, CBD included. If you guys are into CBD, Killcliff makes some of the best clean energy drinks on the market. You guys know I am a fan. I use the Ignite, which is the pre-workout, the Recover, the post-workout, some of the best stuff on the market. Clean energy drinks, so uh, certainly worth an investment. Killcliff.com. Uh, speaking of investments, if you'd like to help out and donate to veterans charities, you can do so right from your own couch, right from your smartphone, just by going to hazardground.com first. And then click on the Sponsors tab, or at the bottom of the page, there's an Amazon button. If you want to do your Amazon shopping, go to HazardGround.com first, that Amazon button, or on the Sponsors tab, redirects you to Amazon, and you can do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground, like the one you're going to hear today, which is an awesome, awesome organization that a lot of my friends I know uh, are big parts of. So uh, please use HazardGround.com before you do your Amazon shopping. Now onto this week's show uh, with somebody that I met through my veteran service work uh, and somebody that I just genuinely look up to for everything that he's done, not only in his military career, but post-military career. Spent over 21 years in the U.S. Army. Ended up retiring as a, as a major. Uh, spent time as an enlisted first and then major. Nine years in the historic 75th Ranger Regiment over 13 years, rather, in the soft community, eight deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, was also part of the initial invasion in Afghanistan in 2001. He is currently the National Transition Director for an organization called Gallant Few, and he's the CEO of Ranger for Life. He is Tony Main joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Tony, welcome, and thank you so much for finally being here, because you and I have been planning this for quite some time. Hey, Mark, I truly appreciate it, and when you know that opening comes up, comes available for my obituary writer, you know, you're going to be at the top of the list, my friend. Well, uh, thank you for, thank you for that. You know, when I hear that it's hard, it's hard to listen to that because it's special and it just really kind of more makes me remember the people they, yeah. they kind of, kind of, kind of get you there. So thank you for that. The, the, the only, the only problem with me being your obituary writer is I actually have to outlive you. And at the pace that I'm going, I don't know that I had stand much of a chance uh, of where I'm going. I've, I've always said, you know, God's probably going to kill me in the next day or two, or he's going to make me live till I'm 107 and just punish me forever. I kid, I kid, I kid. 
Uh, all right. So, yes, I mean, look, it's been an, a, an amazing journey for you uh, and one that I've absolutely loved getting to watch from the periphery. And I'm excited to hear about everything that you've gone through uh, in your career. And Ranger for Life, I think, is so awesome. And yes, it's for Rangers. So if you're not an Army Ranger, it's kind of like not your thing. But still, there are so many in that community now that are still in a, in a post-military life trying to find their way. And I think it's so awesome that you guys are reaching out to those folks and really trying to reconnect them with a with this special type of brethren um, that you guys shared, a special type of brotherhood that you shared while you served together. 100%. And it's understanding the blessings of the people around you. It's understanding that the successes that you have, um, it is made up of an investment of the institution, but in the end of the day, the people carry that out. And this thing, a ranger for life, what I do as a, as a civilian really goes back to when I transitioned because of a medical board, I'm an operations officer in the 75th Ranger Regiment. I'm a below the zone promotion, you know, from captain to major. That's like a good thing. Generally, you know, as an infantry officer, I'm, I'm kind of like checking some boxes, and I get to continue to serve in leadership positions, which is the hope. That's what the Army wants is to serve in leadership positions. So everything's tracking well. And then I undergo a med board. I get a choice. I can stay in the Ranger Regiment, which is awesome, but I'm out of combat arms. And so do I take the job as an electronic warfare officer, um, which, which sounds, you know, if I cared about making money maybe someday and having a technical skill would have been a great choice. Um, but I'm not a science guy. Uh, I believe it exists, but that's not me. Um, and so I took this public affairs job. And yeah. then right away, we kind of realized there's an Army Soldier for Life program, and it means well, but what would it look right at the user level? And that was the impetus for this development of Ranger for Life. We associate in the military with foundational experiences with small groups, and so that the, the badge and the patch we wear, you generally, sorry, we're not all general officers. We don't wear that big star. We right. remember that unit. And so if we're going to do soldier for life, right, great concept, but it needs to be done down at the unit level. That was the impetus for Ranger for Life. Yeah. Uh, and, and speaking of electronic warfare and science, I just for your own edification, you're not the first guy to not follow the science. See what I did there? Uh, I like jokes, it. jokes all around. Okay, let's start back at the beginning for you. Uh, because you actually did it sort of different. Um, you went to college first and then enlisted. I, I won't say what university you went to because it might alienate half of our audience, but that's neither here nor there. I'll let you divulge where you chose to get your education. Well, when you, when you, when you grow up in the great state of Ohio, <laughs> matriculation to the Ohio State yeah. University uh, is, is a thing. Although I will devolve, you know, now a very um, – established pub recognized public university back then we would look at colleges in the 90s 80s and 90s right you'd get those big books yep. where it would have like one page on every college well there was one that was based on like a little bit of like humor and it said to get into ohio state at that time you needed a 98.6 it's like 98 points essay what what is that no blood temperature yeah. right so i was very lucky and blessed to be able to get back get into ohio state before it became extremely selective or that probably would have not uh, be, be my university of choice, but I'd always wanted to join the military, not, not a huge family connection to the military. I was just, you know, one of those kids who was a 
uh, as a distance runner. Um, I had friends, but I love to read and I love to read history. And when you read history, military history, patriotic type works, you know, Rev- American Revolution, Civil War, fascinated w- with those things. Um, I was getting coming out of college and I was like, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to do this military thing. I'm going to do it for three years. Just try it out. Wanted to do something hard. Um, and then I was going to go back to Ohio State, you know, marry that girl I was dating and you know, Kai Omega there at Ohio State and everything was going to be uh, great. But then I came to this military thing and realized, oh, yeah. Well, uh, and, this, and this I chuckled when you said three years because I know you enlisted in 1998 and anybody who could do math tells us what happens in 2001. So timing of this, how does it all work out? And, and by oh. the way, did you enlist for a Ranger contract or you had no idea what it was? I knew you were an infantryman, but did you want to be a Ranger as soon as you got in? Well, in, in, in terms of research at that time, so I was doing all my papers on a Smith Corona typewriter, uh, a word processor. If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. Know that it's horrible. And so in terms of Internet and studying, yes, I wanted to be a Ranger because it was hard. I had no idea what the 75th Ranger Regiment was. Uh, Mogadishu was 1993, right? The books weren't out at that time. I just knew that there was a Ranger school. So I ended up enlisting with the idea of I was a Braves fan growing up because of TBS. I'm going to go down to Fort Benning, right? I'm going to be near the Braves. I'm going to be in the Army. I'm going to do this for three years. It was not as well thought out um, as as the uh, young men and, and women now have access to. But <laughs> Best way plans, up, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I end up, I end up coming down, and, and I get through Ranger School uh, quickly. Uh, actually very blessed that – uh, our platoon sergeant, Joe Clark, who is getting inducted into the Ranger Hall of Fame this year with my company commander at the time, uh, Sean Daniel. Um, also, my first first sergeant, Chris Hardy. All these people all inducted the same year. Once again, it's all about people. That's who I was surrounded with. I was blessed. But I, I get I get down there. I get to Ranger School real quick. Um, get through in about a year and a half of, of time in service and from when I started to that point. And so I'm, I'm already a leader in the Ranger Regiment at a year and a half. So I go to PLDC. And to get back to your question, so how does 9-11 fit? Holy crap. So I'm in a maintenance class at PLDC, which is now uh, – what is that? Primary leadership warrior development leader, course. Yeah, yeah, PL, yeah. Or, or warrior yeah. leader course, whatever it is. I forget. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're going from, you know, um, specialist to sergeant or, or corporal, right. that's when you go to those things. And so I'm sitting in a maintenance class taught by an E7, right? And maintenance is very important, like 100%. But a sergeant, another sergeant first class came in and said, hey, there's just been an incident with World Trade Center. Okay. At this time, my... My battalion is based on the alert status of the Ranger Regiment is the one that's ready to go. And I'm in this professional development course, and we don't pull Rangers out of professional development courses. So I hear about the first building, and we're all looking at each other like, no way. Then we hear about the second. It's a terrorist attack. And we have like 11 more days of PLDC to go. Right. Right. Like, I've... I'm worried about like marching because Rangers are not the best marchers ever. I'm worried about like leading a squad and marching and and the guys are getting ready to go to the show. But I end up graduating from PLDC. My um, staff sergeant's there with uh, my Kevlar helmet and my LCE. And we go to the drop zone, uh, Decker Air Landing Strip, right by fire drop zone for anybody who's jumped out of airplanes in Fort Benning during airborne school. And that's where we did the rehearsal mission for the jump into objective rhino so it was just a, it was a whirlwind of a time for sure 
Okay, so let's kind of put all this together here because I mentioned at the open that you were part of the initial airborne drop-in. Um, you get back from L- uh, from PLDC, whatever we're calling it now, you know. Uh, but do you immediately find out, hey, we're going and you guys are part of this? I mean, is that – or is, is it generally just everybody's training at that point in time for something but they don't 100% know what yet? No, I mean, we, we I get gear. I go to Decker Airstrip and we are doing – a rehearsal, a walkthrough for that airborne drop. That's crazy. It is crazy. And at that time, we're not allowed to go back and forth to the unit, even though we're at Fort Benning. And so they have been packing. They're making contingency plans. Um, Sean Daniel, he tells the story, the company commander, how they they tried to send them as like a, a four for the forward staging base to Tajikistan. They just forgot as he got on the C-17 and went over there to actually get like, I don't know, the politicians and the embassy to say it was OK to be there. So he ends up flying back in time, you know, to, to, to lead us as the company commander for Charlie Company 375 into that drop just it, it, well, it once again it best so laid plans right uh yeah they, they, <laughs> they always work out so okay so this is a couple of obviously very shortly after 9-11 but we don't end up invading until october so there's what another couple of weeks there is that all just non-stop training for you so it's packing and being ready mm-hmm. right i mean you have to set up as we as we what do they say um professionals do tactics experts do logistics Right, like you've got to set up that train to be able to support the survivability of this force before you think about dropping them somewhere uh, in, a, in a foreign country, getting them back. So all those things were going going on. Also, uh, if you're an airborne soldier, what you care about most in the weather report is not the wind; it's the moon phase. Because the last thing that you want to do in the desert for anyone who's been there is is to be jumping in full loom. Yep. So we had to wait for that cycle to go down as well. So they just came off of a full moon, I think right after 9-11. Um, and it, it just, it lined up when we were ready to go. We, we had to wait for moon phases and some other things to happen as well. Crazy. Um, are you fully prepared for about what you're physically about to jump into? Like what, what is your mindset going into this whole thing? That's a great question, Mark, because I hear a lot of people saying, like, the training, the training, you were trained and we were ready. Um, and when I look back on it, to answer that question, were we trained? Yes. But I will tell you, everybody has their own mind. And if, if you don't have a little bit of nervousness and a little bit of fear, like, I think that's the definition of, of uh, being psychotic, right? So were we all looking forward to being able to do a combat jump in the first one since Panama? Yes. Were we all jazzed up going to the show? Yes. Um, did each of us uh, secretly try to hold on to our bladders? 100% yes. You know, like that's that's uh, that low leveling from our uh, final staging base to the target. I will tell you that some people fell asleep. I still don't know how to this day, but I, I can remember – you know, I was a distance runner, so I can remember taking taking my pulse, right? I'm, I was at like 140 the entire time. Oh, God. So by the time you hit the ground and you're getting to your blocking position, well, not blocking positions, but you're, you're getting to your assembly areas to go on and, and, and do your job, exhausted, absolutely exhausted. The adrenaline carried you, but just absolutely exhausted just from that anticipation. Yeah, I mean, uh, I always – said that I hope my training would kick in, but I never went into it with any overwhelming sense of confidence of 
well, I'm trained for this, right? Like, I ne- my mindset never went there. Anytime I went out on a mission or a convoy, my mindset was more of, you know, just do what's right because they're, they're, all the training in the world isn't going to plan me for the variety of contingencies that were out there. Uh, and you always knew that there were variables that you couldn't train for. And so when things went wrong, all I hoped was that I would react in the right way and that the training portion of things would sort of be instinctual. A hundred percent for me, though, you know, although I have self-doubt, that's just part of my makeup and who I am and a little bit of Irish guilt in me. I, I, I will tell you, the folks that I was around, I had a hundred percent trust. Yeah. And, and that that is that's what's carried me. You know, like I always carry this little little bit of doubt. It's something that I work on to this day. Right. It's one of the things that's also my drivers. So, you know, it ends up, you know, what's your biggest weakness? What's your oh, my weakness is that yes. and it makes it a strength. But mm-hmm. the folks that I was around, there was there was no doubt. And at that time, we only had, I think, in our company on that drop one one ranger had been to combat before um, who, who had been to Somalia. I mean, so this was uh, it's funny now people are looking at people's uniforms and they're not seeing CIBs anymore after uh, combat infantrymen badges for the army after after more than twenty years, and it's like it goes like that. You know, our, our cycles are like three. Well, that's CIB is just combat patches at this point. Oh goodness, yes. I mean, yes. I was I was down. I was I forget what I was telling this to. I was down at Fort Stewart um, doing some of my National Guard training, and we were sitting in the in the PX, uh, you know, for lunch, and uh, you know they got the food court there. You know, all military bases happen for those who aren't familiar. But I just remember seeing a cast of these lieutenants walk in and, and all these E5s and E6s and they're all going to lunch. And I just – I'm not like the guy who stares at everybody's uniform because I don't care. Like I don't even wear anything on mine. I wear my name, U.S. Army, and rank and that's it because I don't need to – I just – I've always felt like – and I learned that in the soft community. It's like if you want my record, I'll show it to you. Otherwise, let me just do my job and everything else will take care of itself. But that said, um, I, I saw myself walk by and I noticed that nobody was wearing a right sleeve patch. And and it, the thought just hit me. I'm like, none of these kids have been to combat. Like, we've turned over so much that nobody here has deployed to a combat zone. And that's that stage of, of warriors are sort of um, not physical. Well, some of them, are, unfortunately, are physically dying off. But, you know, there is, they're leaving the military and going on to different things. And you have a whole crop of, of really green, cherry folks who, uh, who have yet to experience the glory that is, right? It is, and it affects the the, the culture of the institution sure, yeah. itself. You know, and the army says that, that we want to focus on the squad. The squads led by E six is a staff sergeant, and you're right. They, the idea that it's one thing to have deployed, it's another thing to shoot your weapon. It's another thing to have to duck first and shoot your weapon, right? And so you're right that that that, that generation outside of training, I mean, they're they're at the senior levels yeah. of our military right now. The duck first is always the part that gets people, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, I, I want more question on the invasion itself because I, I find this fascinating. And I only learned this stuff later in my career from actually seeing, you know, high-level scale operations and what the planning is for them. So I'm always fascinated by it now. And, and I look back and I think I would love to have been a fly on the wall watching how that course of action analysis went, right? Um what is the actual mission? Like, where are you dropping in? Because uh, we had already started a bombing campaign at this point in time by the time you guys do your combat drop, correct? So I believe uh, at that point there had been there had been bombs. Yeah. We went out the, – the day that we did our drop was also the same night 
that um, the Special Forces Group began their uh, work with the Northern Alliance, right? So mm-hmm. that's the same day, October 19th, um, 2001. But as a, at that time, a, a team leader, an E-5 sergeant, um, you know, we didn't have access to a ton of information like you would these right. days, right? Because folks weren't on cell phones, right? Because we didn't have them. People weren't reading the news themselves. So I like to think of it, it was a very pure time in the war where you spent time with your guys. We were intense together, not little, not little chew rooms where people were Skyping with their, their mom or their right. girlfriend um, back home and being isolated. We did everything together. I learned how to get beat at chess uh, multiple times um, by a private in, in, in my fire team um, in, in a very embarrassing ways repeatedly. Um, it just, it, it was a very, it was an interesting time. Like we formed some bonds there, right? Ranger regiment, very stratified. You know, if you don't have a Ranger tab and you're at Fort Benning where everybody's looking at, talk about looking at your uniform. Mm-hmm. Like it starts at Fort Benning. If you're a war fighter um, in the army for, for infantry and armor and everybody looks you up and down. And that was the first time in the Ranger community where, I mean, we maintained the standards, but it, we were almost like all war fighters together. It wasn't as stratified, still stratified, and it's changed over the years. But that was, that was like a clear uh, memory and experience that war, right, and, and the battle can bring is it's, if you got an expert to your left or right at their rank, all right, then, then we're kind of at an equal level, not of responsibility, but, but there's a mutual respect. That's some, something that you don't always feel in garrison uh, dur- right. during the 90s, but a little bit different now. When, when the drop is done and you're actually on ground, is there a shift in your mindset? I mean, you talk so much about the adrenaline leading up to it. How hard is it to transition that from, hey, let's get on the ground, get alive, to, okay, we've made it through the first 24 hours, kind of now what? I mean, was everything mapped out for you as far as all that's concerned, or are you now sort of making it up as you go along? So for, for the jump, that is what's considered a, the whole operation was a classic Ranger raid. We were on the ground and off, I think in a period of like four hours, so, something to that extent, check the, check the log books uh, for, for the, for the exact time. So we got extracted, you know, under that oh, wow. single period of darkness, you know, and, and that's what makes the Ranger regiment a little, you know, special within, within the community is, is that we, we don't drop as many as that, say the, the, uh, uh, 82nd Airborne Division uh, might because we have, it's a raid. It is a get in due to the enemy and get out. So I will tell you personally, interesting story. The moment I hit the ground, anybody who's jumped at night, you also hit the ground like a sack of potatoes. I think it's a nice way to put it, right? <laughs> you hit the ground pretty hard at night. Your, your death perception is always off a little bit and you're carrying about uh, at least a, a third to a half more gear than you would in, in terms of, in terms of weight. I hit the ground. I go feet, head which are not those those are two of the five points of performance um but you're not supposed to go in that order right <laughs> and, and so at that time the kevlar helmet just a single chin strap is off and it's on the desert floor now when we jump pre-assault fires like we have a total of three objectives on that mission i think two of them were lit up oh wow so like it felt like we were going in pretty hot Right. And by the time we get to the assembly area and move out, there's already gunfire. Right. So 
uh, wow, it, it was something. But so we get on the ground, we assemble, and then the main objective for um, my platoon was was the compound itself at Rhino to clear and do the sensitive site uh, ex- exploitation. But it felt it felt fast. It felt extremely fast, and it's your first time in combat. So now every twig, every movement, right? Controlling, controlling uh, your 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 soldiers, your rangers. It was it, it was something. It was definitely something. Utter exhaustion on the plane ride back, too. Right. I, I've never say. the smelliest, tiredest group of dudes. And it's funny because a four hour mission that you know you fast forward ten years. Right, you'll spend four four hours just going up a mountainside to do your operation, right? So it's just it's, it's, the evolution is, is is amazing. Yeah, I know. Um, so after you guys get back, now do you fly? You stay in theater? Or you go all the way back to the states when you fly back? So we go back. We don't know what's next. That's why. I was, that's why I was asking. I was curious. No, and so our our deployment was at was just that operation. Wow. Was that was was that was that 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 was the story? That was it was the singular operation. Bagram hadn't been built up by that time, nope. right? There, there was there was no Bagram, and anybody who's ever been to Bagram early remembers the whole concern with mines and not having Afghanistan. Mines were the big deal. It wasn't the Taliban. Yeah, I mean, honestly, we I would say we were ignorant of our concern for the Taliban because who can't beat people in AKs, right? Like that's that's not going to be hard. That's not the hard part. guys in underwear and sandals and AKs, right? We can't beat those guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who, who can't beat those beat those folks? They've only been doing it for a couple of years. But it was more of the mines everywhere. I remember I was scared to death. Our second deployment, we replace Second Ranger Battalion. One of our guys doesn't listen to the brief, immediately throws out a water bottle to one of the locals. Because at this point, we're still Americans and kids matter, right? Like, I mean, they always matter. And you want to help them. And But young soldiers don't always have the perspective as senior leaders. Kid steps in a minefield. Luckily, we were able to treat him, missing a little bit of his foot, but he was, he was able to be treated. But, oh, my goodness, mines. That's that's what I remember. We were worried about driving off the road. We were worried about driving off the road, even on Bagram Airfield proper. Just yeah. amazing yeah. what the thought process was back then. <sighs> Crazy. So you guys get all the way back to the States. Um, what's it like trying to come down from that and and go back to sort of – normal life, if you will. Well, so what we knew is that it wasn't going to be normal. We yeah, just didn't know I mean, for how long. Right. Well, I guess that's Which kind of a better cool. way to look at it. Sure. Right. Because now you've gone to the show. So every every other time Rangers had deployed, goodness gracious, you go back to World War One. If you're a Ranger, you were in there until it was over and you were done. Right. And then Korea, you're in there in the Ranger companies, you were done. Vietnam, you were part of the the LERPs, the LERS, until you were done. Grenada, in and out. Eagle Claw, failed rescue attempt, right? Um, But in and out. Panama, in and out. This was different. And I look back at some of the leaders who stressed that. Even we went to the initial staging base, and the they 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 would they would take or the FSB the final staging base they would say pay attention we're going to need to know this again we're going to have to do this better again and I can still remember who those leaders are and they all made it really far um, in, inside of a headquarters a department of the army um, and that goes back to the you know thinking like an expert and logician but from a personal level coming back the first thing that you want to do 
is just experience mm-hmm. America, just <laughs> right. like any, any any deployment. Um, I just want I a cold beer and a burger. <laughs> well, I had, I had a horrible experience with that. Oh, really? I, I really had a hard I had a hard time. We did lose two Rangers on that jump. They 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 died in um, Afghanistan as part of a uh, Black Hawk brownout with the 160th as they were trying to set down for QRF for a, a couple of other missions that were going on at the same time. Um, and during the brownout conditions, they un- unhooked their snap link a little bit early and exited the aircraft. And then that, that is how um, oh, wow. they, they expire. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Absolutely horrible. So um, I've always been very emotional when Rangers die. I'm not trying to say that I'm special or coded for the podcast. It's just, for me, it was family. I didn't, I didn't know those guys at all. Um, but it was just really tough to know that here we did this operation. We're getting credit for. Brought a news crew with us. General Franks comes in the next day and gives us all a hug. He said, line up and get a hug because the president of the United States ordered me to do this. Right? and But we still lost people. And I come back and I like, I've got like a little bit of survivor's guilt. Right for our, our Bravo uh, company rangers that, that had died. And I go to the mall in Columbus, Georgia. If you haven't been to the mall in Columbus, Georgia, uh, it is an interesting uh, crossroads of Americana uh, is, is a nice way to put it. And I, I remember sitting down on a bench and like this, you know, like this is, this is the freedom, you know, that we're fighting for. You know, and I really had a hard. It was a weird. It was a, it was a weird perspective. Not not everybody looks at the gifts um, and the sacrifices of service members kind of the same. And it took me well into my third deployment, um, be after coming home from that deployment, to really be able to let go of a little bit of anger when I when when I came home. Like as in, you civilians don't get it. Like you've got it yeah. so good. I have seen people take and clean themselves with their bare hand to do something that is a great way to spread disease and kill like populations in major cities. That's how they clean themselves. Right. And we were complaining about what again, you know, so that, that was, that was, that was my hardest time. That was my hardest time back home. Again, I understand that it never, it never bothered me that they didn't understand because I knew they didn't have the frame of reference to understand, you know, Uh, I mean, just can you know? Ask someone to understand calculus who's never taken calculus. You, you, you're never going to get them on on any level where they're going to appreciate it. And people who um, didn't appreciate America, you know, I always shrugged it off uh, as, you know, hey, I think you're an idiot and I, I think you're wrong. But the great thing about what we fight for is that we give you the right to be an idiot and be wrong, and and you can go live your life as an idiot and wrong and. Uh, I'll defend you the same way I will as to somebody who's a genius and who's right. So that's uh, that's kind of what the code is, right? I mean, we're not we're not choosy about who we we, we fight and defend freedom for. It's freedom for all, and I, I, that's always at least the the compartment I put it in. But you know, you get back from that first one. When do you get to your second one? And is that in the invasion of Iraq? Because you were there for that as well. So we come back, and that was that that mention um, of Bagram Airfield not not mm-hmm. being kind of stood up. So after that initial mission. Right. And, and regiment from that point on is is continuously deployed. Oh, yeah. And, and until until the pullout um, uh, last year. Right. Yeah. Last year. Mm-hmm. Um, 
That's when I believe we had a first Ranger battalion go into Bagram, I believe, um, followed by second Ranger battalion. So we knew that we were going back. Like now this is a thing, right? We, we, we know, we know this is a, is, is happening. By the time we come back in the summer of 2002, right? Operation Anaconda has happened with first Ranger battalion. Yep. yep. Um, and so the battle of Tucker Gar. So, so we are very aware that, that there will be fighting. Kind of, kind of going on, um, and this could be, this could be a pretty, pretty serious uh, event. And so that second, second deployment, um, we go up to um, Asadabad. Um, goodness gracious! Like my, at that point, my knowledge of Afghan prom- provinces is actually absolutely horrible. Right? I spent all my time training. I didn't spend enough time. Um, in, in the guidebook, and it's on that deployment I saw my first IED. It happened to another uh, special operations unit that we were working alongside of, and I saw what a very small, and they use a mine, of course, like a, a leftover mine, mm-hmm. um, what that could do to a Hilux truck. I right, like, need Hiluxes up here, no armor. You need speed. Speed is the way to go. You know, everybody comes home wants to uh, buy a, Toyota Tacoma, but on that deployment, you know, we were, we were kind of alone and unafraid out there resupply every few days and and really trying to, you know, at that time, um, before the special operations machine is, is really Mm -hmm. truly going on all, all cylinders, trying to figure out how to get a, get after HVT. So we're doing everything from, uh, driving vehicles, um, to rotary wing infills, uh, to, you know, OP points, you know, getting there on foot and just really trying, trying to figure it out. And I, I, what I saw is, man, we struggled on the intelligence on that human intelligence side. Cause we didn't, you know, that cultural understanding, you know, a passion Wally of the Afghanistan and, and then the way that that would play in, like that was hard for a lot of us. Like, what's wrong with these people? They're all so nice, right? And because we just didn't, we just didn't know what we didn't know, mm-hmm. right? It was, it was, uh, it's amazing. And we, you go back to that same location years later, and it's one of the hottest spots in Afghanistan. <laughs> so, I know. Yeah. yeah. What's um, you know, the first time for you when, and I know you said you had some contact. You came in hot on the initial drop, but. A, a more coordinated operation where bullets are flying for you. Is there a difference or it doesn't matter in your mind? No, it matters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it it, 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 it so. doesn't, but I, I will tell you, I, I, w- I was kind of blessed, right? So in terms of getting shot at with effective fire, it doesn't happen to my third deployment. And so that was the invasion of Iraq. Right. Um, and that was Haditha Dam. And Haditha Dam was one hell of an operation. And so it, it started with, you know, we, we were dropped. Um, we did another combat uh, jump. And we were dropped um, in, in the western part of Iraq, a, a DZ called, called Charlie DZ, not named after the company, um, but named after our dog which was named after the company, oh, okay. the company dog, Charlie. Um, so vengeance, 
uh, Vengeance DZ was the actual name. Maybe the objective was Charlie for, for the dog. And so we, we jump in there and await B company to come in with C-130s. We'd set up um, a perimeter. And we were really just a, a forward staging base for a surgical team, mm-hmm. for the other sp- special operators working in the West, because the West of Iraq, the idea is that we could delay any type of reinforcements, right, into the uh, to the main assault into uh, Baghdad. And we didn't know what... We didn't know what to do at my user level um, as a squad leader uh, and other than just we were going to stay and pull security there until we had follow-on missions. So like that traditional ranger school, hey, be prepared, follow-on missions. Bravo Company came with a load of GMVs, which were um, or replaced our RSOVs, which were just unarmored trucks. And we were told we had to go seize Haditha Dam. So we had one 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 period of darkness to leave. Um, drove halfway there, driving through wadis, not using main roads. I was a driver that was e- under nods, easily the one of the worst experiences of my adult life because um, it was just horrible. I thought I was going to get everybody killed. Every if you've ever driven um, with earlier generation nods at night. With that many vehicles, like a company's worth of vehicles, just smoke everywhere. I know armor armor officers are laughing at me here in this, and that's fine because I laugh at you too. Um, but for different but reasons. I just like <laughs> you don't drive vehicles off terrain a whole lot in training, right? Because you don't want to break them. Well, we tried to break every single one of those, and Haditha Dam, the objective itself, just this you know the largest hydroelectric plant like in the Middle East provides all the power to Baghdad. So we had to go t- seize that objective so that there were thoughts or intelligence that Saddam Hussein might try to actually flood the Euphrates, right? So pretty, pretty, pretty big deal. So we jump in, find out we have this operation, go at night. And that ended up being like an eight day firefight. Like, oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. It ab- absolutely crazy. Some folks did some heroic things there. Took mortar rounds for about two weeks, which was highly enjoyable. Um, luckily, the, Iraq- the Iraqis do not have the same level of training or competence that we do with our weapon systems. Um, but the other operations and being around those leaders and trusting those leaders really helped prepare us for for that operation. You know, the 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 fire control that was exhibited. You know, the fact that at that point, Haditha Dam was roughly a year and a half, almost yeah, year and a half after Rhino. So we we were training with a different seriousness. And we already started thinking by 2002 that this Iraq thing was going to happen. You know, mm-hmm. I, 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 that had become kind of in our in our culture. We saw the congressional testimony. We heard General yeah. Powell speak yeah. as Secretary of State. So. When we when we were going into Iraq, you know, now you're not thinking about sandals and flip flops. You're thinking about armor, right? You're worried about driving at night because if anybody knows what they're doing with the laser guided system, you are you are dead before you know that the shot was fired. You know, it was it was absolutely har- harrowing operation, um, to uh, to say the least. When you're in a firefight like that, does it ever change your perspective? about going into another one? I mean, you had you had had brushes with firefights before, but when it's eight days and everything else and you watch 
death and destruction around you. And I don't know how, if, if you guys took any casualties during that whole thing. I, I assume yes or, you know. You, you, we did. We did. In fact, my gunner, um, I got caught in a, in, a, in a traditional Polish ambush um, with RPGs initiated from both sides of a street. Anybody who's been in the Middle East knows that generally the roads are, you know, um, anywhere from two to 15 feet above ground, depending on the agriculture need. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I actually had my driver, he got a, he got like that, that one, $1 million purple heart, uh, hit his, hit, hit his like uh foot, right. Bullet got lodged in his foot. Um, and he's able to, to, to get us, get us back to where we uh, needed to be to safety. And we did lose a couple Rangers a couple days after that, that first night of a uh, pretty intense fighting where they were uh, a total of three Rangers. Um, they were at a checkpoint. And at that checkpoint, a woman was a suicide bomber. So, right. And that's the first time we'd experienced that. So we knew about the IEDs from Iraq, but the idea as a a civilian, as a shield, that operation is one of the first counts of that in Iraq. Oh, wow. And so we were trying to figure out. So what happened? Okay. ID to checkpoint. Okay. Be careful. And then we heard the backstory. And that's that's the whole wait, this war thing isn't fair. When you say backstory, what do you mean? Clarify. Well, I mean just the understanding that human beings would do that. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, like this is a general tactic that's going to be used over and over again. Yeah, like, oh, maybe everybody doesn't read the Geneva Convention. Convention. Like, aren't we like I'm an American boy. Aren't things supposed to be fair? Aren't there ways to do things? Yeah, well, you know, and I, I kind of harken back to my time. I told you, I when I grew up, I loved to read history. The reason I love Civil War history so much is because I'll go down as record. I'm kind of anti-slavery, right? Like, and I I cannot be swayed for state rights. Like, I do not believe that it's state rights. I believe poor. That's but that's my thought. You're entitled to your own opinion. But the reason the Civil War fascinated me is why would people still fight? Right. And there was something that I kind of came up with in college was that, well, it's because you're there. And when that IED went off and I ended up finding out the backstory just because of the way I happened to grow up and the way I look at life, I was like, oh, wow. Like, I'm sure we're going to get in and get out of this place because this culture, like, this is different. Yeah. I mean, it's uh I was there two years later, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I agree with you. The, the The culture shock doesn't not define it uh, in understanding just where you are. And I, I, I remember the first time I heard the story, uh, and it happened to one of the Iraqi soldiers I was working with, but um, they booby-trapped an IED to his front door, so when he went to leave his house in the morning, it exploded. I mean, you know, talk about unfair. Like, I didn't even get a chance to get to my car, you know, like I didn't even get a chance to drive to the war <laughs> or walk there for that matter. Um, it's 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 that level of maniacal. So I, I certainly understand um, what you're saying. And I guess, you know, I wonder for you, for somebody who had intended to do three years and see what this army thing was all about. You've been in combat several times. You've lost several of your brothers. You've seen other people wounded and make it out alive. Was there any part of you that was like, you know, um, yeah, I'm good. 
You know, like I, I said, I was going to do three. I've done a little bit more than three. I've gotten my taste of combat. I'm basically in one piece. I can move on to the next phase of my life. Any thoughts of that at all? None. No. In fact, the, after the second deployment um, is, is when I decided that I was going to I didn't know if I was going to make the military a career, but I was going to commit more time. That mm-hmm. girlfriend back at Ohio State, she didn't she didn't agree with that. So she 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 went uh, the way of the dodo bird. She went to go um, for Michigan. Was, no, no, she's smart. She's actually her <laughs> first job. She's a speechwriter for the secretary of state of Ohio. Um, but 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 anywho, but anywho, I, I, I digress. Great, great, great young lady. Um, I decided to become an officer and it wasn't because like, I thought I could do better. It wasn't the pay. It wasn't any uh, of those things. Maybe I read too many history books. And up until that time, most history books were, or were, were written about um, officers. It's, it was the NCO promotion scale. Like it was like just the way that it happened. And so I got promoted to staff sergeant, like really quick, like four and a half years. I think like whenever the soonest was, and that's kind of how it works in Ranger Regiment because you have a Ranger tab, you're um, drop master qualified. Generally, I was not. Um, my team leader was. That was embarrassing. Anywho, like you got all these markers that 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 get you promoted um, really quick. And I started looking at the next promotion and when can I lead more Rangers? Three years because that's the way the system is. And I didn't like it. Yeah. Three- I wanted to lead more people. If people were going to, like, I thought I learned a lot and I wasn't trying to live what, what's known as Abrams Charter, which is the reason that the Ranger Regiment was created to actually set, set the example for, for the rest of the army coming out of Vietnam. So it was meant more of not necessarily war fighting, but training and standards. And so I wasn't like some glorious, ambitious guy like that. That I decided I was going to continue to fight and I wanted to be in charge of more people. I wanted to get closer to that tip of the spear of, of being able to make decisions Versus being told what to do. Yeah. Um, and then I ended up getting what I asked for <laughs> in, in spades for sure. Well, and again, you had a much shorter route. It's not like you had to go through four years of college or anything and get your degree. You already have it in your back pocket. So green to gold is fairly a paperwork matter, isn't it? Or, or, you know, go through OCS, obviously, or whatever. You still have to go through that level of training. But uh, the degree part was the easy, was, was the more lengthy part, I should say. Well, I was. So here's a great story about Haditha Dam. So Haditha Dam um, kind of wraps up. We stay we stay on that we stay on the dam for I think about a month, but the fighting, as I said, that was about like a, a week to ten days in the mortar fire and whatnot. So that finally shut off. Um, but once uh, General Brown from SOCOM was able to come because he was he was an aviator, and so he came in, in a, a couple of Black Hawk ships, and he asked me up there. I was one of the soldiers, you know, that was uh, required to speak with him. You know, he, he said, is there anything that they I can do for you? And I said, yes, sir. I said, I'm currently in the medical board process, like through the Green to Gold program. Like they're, they're looking and, I, and I'm waiting on a result. I'm supposed to go back and start Clemson in, in August. And he's like, he, of course, he looks at his aide and he goes, make sure we take care of that. By the time I get off the dam, right, and, and we return, 3rd Ranger Battalion returns, and in, in our little PO mailbox, I've got my letter that I've been cleared for green to gold, and, they, and it, everything was taken care of. Oh, you know, so, man. so for me, getting ready to go to Clemson, know that I'm leaving Rangers, not thinking that we try to establish democracies in, in two parts of the country that uh, two parts of the world that um, probably would not be very perceptive. Um, 
you know, so my, my read of history was really wrong on that one. You know, I, I am not Nostradamus, but I, I do. I'm like, hey, man, I, I owe something forward. Right. Like I've been blessed to be in Ranger Regiment by luck because my research sure as heck didn't help me thinking that I was going to Ranger school and be close to the Atlanta Braves. Right. And now I want to be an officer. And it's like, look at all these people doing things for me. Like, what have I done? Right. Like, so I knew I had a, a pretty big debt. Uh, to pay for it. And I was looking forward to doing it. Once you finish, uh, you know, you, you, I mean, and again, it's OCS, right? They, I mean, your green to gold program, program was just that. Or they, they, no, no, I didn't. So when you're at Fort Benning, you see all these folks marching in a hundred degree heat, wearing an ascot, banging a drum and getting back then at OCS, you are getting hazed. Yeah. Right. Okay. The whole GI drills and everything. And I had heard about that. And I said, well, I'm single. You already know from the Ohio State University that I love me some college football, right? And at one time, I'd actually dated the girl at Clemson, too. So I went to Clemson and picked up a master's degree because I knew as an officer I need to have a master's degree. So, I mean, talk about somebody who was blessed. Yeah. And I was able to get a master's degree and then go back into the GWAT, which I thought was going to be over by then. But Wow. Good for you. Huh. Ohio State and Clemson are still trying to merge the Big Ten and the ACC. It's really not going well for me. I thought, uh, you know, I mean, I guess on the bright side, you didn't go to Michigan, right? Or Alabama. Yeah, for that yeah that, 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 that's for sure. That's so, for sure. But I say my, my Saturdays, usually I'm good, right? The worst Saturday I have, you know, I'm only upset for like until the 3.30 game. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm all right. <laughs> there you go. So when you get back to uh, the regiment, you're an officer now. You're you're, you're uh, going to be a platoon leader. What's the biggest difference for you? All right. So generally, and it, it can happen. Most folks who leave, they don't go straight back to the regiment. Right. So I actually, I, I I do go to Clemson. I do meet that southern girl. I was kind of thinking about from all that history reading. We do get married, but I, my assignment, we decide to go to Germany first. Okay. I now once again didn't do all my research, didn't realize in the GWAT that would be harder to get back to Ranger Regiment. It actually takes me 10 years to get back to Ranger Regiment. Wow. But I end up going to Germany. My wife stays behind. Um, and she continues to work at, at Florida State. And uh we're, we're you have too many conflicting colleges in my mind right now. It's really starting to bother me. It's fun, man. I, well, this this is what we do at home. Yeah, we, we I, love I can only sports. Imagine. <laughs> yeah, we, we're 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 definitely uh a sports, I, you would think with colleges and education, but we're also an education family. But yeah, <laughs> very, very, very big, very big uh, sporting uh, family. But I, we go off to Germany, and I go into a second brigade, first armor division. So now I'm mechanized. Did with you a hate ranger that? tab, a ranger scroll, and our unit is forward deployed. Now the most of the brigade is already in. Baghdad area. Right. It just so happened since I came late, there was a what they called the theater reserve pre-surge theater reserve. And we were in Kuwait at, with a, a brigade combat team. Sounds sized miserable. Element. No, no, I'm sorry. A, a, a battalion sized element. Um, and I find out when I get there that Doug DeCenzo not the old uh, center fielder for the Chicago Cubs, but my old Ranger buddy who had been a West Pointer is the company commander for one of the companies that is in Iraq as part of that brigade, as I'm kind of back in Kuwait. And I'm on the ground um, training as a platoon leader, knowing that we'll probably 
you know, go mechanized uh, somewhere at some point when called. And I find out that Doug dies. So here's the kid who gets me through Ranger School as a West Pointer. We have a pretty cool bond because I'd graduated from Ohio State and went to Ranger School. I was older than him, right? But he he was much better and, and way more polished a leader, um, military leader than I was. I mean, he, he was just amazing. And so at first I thought, well, maybe I could, you know, work for him. Um, it didn't work out. But like, talk about being slapped in the face. And I remember my company commander saying, hey, you're, you're Ranger, buddy. What was killed on route Irish, you know, which had taken taken more than yeah. more more than a few Americans um, during during that summer. Logged more miles on that road than I care to count. That's for darn sure. Oh my gosh! Well, I'm just glad you're here to talk to us. Between, I mean, between I- Irish and Tampa, I hate the two words when it comes oh, to roads. Uh, understood. Yeah, uh, plenty plenty of uh, plenty of miles there. So um, finding out that you had lost somebody so close to you again, none of this is changing your mindset. Like, how do you? Are you ever aware how immune you're getting to all of this? You know, this this will be hard for some people. I'll, I'll keep it quick. Like I'm a man of faith. Okay. Okay. And, and our our time on this world is 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 short. If you look at you know the the, the clock of the world, right? So um, I got right with God. Uh, I read the New Testament. My second deployment. I understood that the Middle East is a is a is a crap show. And when I mean a crap show, like for those of you who can read the Bible for history, not not trying to convince, not not some weird, I'm not trying to enfilade you or something to try to trick you mm-hmm. to what I believe. If you read it for pure history and, and, and what it's the always writer, been a shit show. It will no 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 it's always been. I would argue this, Mark, it will always be. Yes. And when it's not <laughs> When it's not is right before the end of the world. Should you believe revelation? That, that, yes. Yeah. So, so, okay. so you know what I mean. That's so. When I say like I didn't expect there to there be a go. democracy, I totally I, forgot I that. I'm a by the way, guy. <laughs> I don't think I'm clairvoyant, but it's like a, a a bunch of smart Americans who, and I'm not saying, and we're not a Christian nation. Christianity is not our official religion, right? But you think you know it's it's pretty powerful to be like you know. There's a source saying maybe you don't want to do this, and it's all played out over a couple thousand years. So yeah. be careful. Yeah. But anywho, so that being said, to answer your question, like I'm very firm, kind of, kind of where I'm at, right? And 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 that's what helped me. Now to keep people, other people alive, that was my mission. I was I was a, never wanted to be a general officer. Didn't care about being the best. I hate platoon competitions. Other than the fact I like when we compete against ourselves, like the rah rah stuff. I say, put down your pom-poms. I hate all that crap because war is about doing what you're told and winning. And you've got to do that very well at whatever element Mm -hmm. you can control. Right. And so I was like, you know what? That's how I'm going to make a difference for these guys. I guess, I I mean, look, we spend so much time and you and I have touched on this a little bit back in some of our personal conversations. Um, you, know, you talk about mental health and, and the struggles of it and everything else. And, and I ask these questions now with the benefit of hindsight being 2020. Did, did you realize how, imu- how immune you were becoming to all this stuff? And some of that comes from a pure level of frustration, I guess, personal, both an empathetically frustration for others um, in a sense where why didn't anybody have the wherewithal to understand that, okay, hey, turn the page, focus, mission forward wasn't the best way to handle all this stuff going forward. Um, and so I asked the question from that standpoint, 
and more of looking hindsight 2020, I guess, is a better way to phrase the question. Do you think that if you had had some semblance of wherewithal to be able to acknowledge that, hey, turning the page, my best friend just died, a guy who I dedicated a part of my life to is now gone. Maybe I need to kind of refocus my energies and my compass and everything else. You know, that may be the better way to phrase it, but the answer kind of is still the same. You weren't thinking that way, correct? Yeah, probably probably a little too young, probably a little bit, you know, let, let, let's go get the bad guys a little bit. Well, Even though now was, we're right? talking yeah. on a like geopolitical scale, like I was very neophyte in how I kind of put that um, all together. But I, I do wear a bracelet. You know, it's, it was very hard when I learned that my best friend from the Ranger Regiment who, who ended up going to Alaska uh, was killed. He had a, a combat medic. We called him, his nickname was Fat Medic, which was not a term of endearment. Um, and he was not fat. He was a a big Hulk who we made fun of for running the five mile standard run where you're supposed to be in 40 minutes. He he was so slow, he would run it in 3830 um, and get made fun of it, even though he could squat 600 pounds, bench press 400. You know, he wasn't he wasn't fast as everybody else in the platoon. Uh, ends up ends up getting uh, dismissed from the Ranger Regiment and when I found out that he died, um, performing, going to perform um, his first duties as a combat medic, right? So it's one thing to do it in training, but there's an IED behind his. And this was the first time um, that we know of that he was actually going to treat somebody wounded. He was blown up in a secondary IED. Oh, God. And, and so Mike and I. Um, he's the only other ranger while I was here in Columbus, Georgia enlisted that I went to church with, and I did not go to church all the time. I mean, I was, I was burning it up more than I was going to church, but he is the only, he's the person that I talked to about all that type of stuff. So man, I, I, the crazy part is, is I, I don't know if we ever really start to take inventory on loss while we're in the moment constantly deploying, right? Like, you say it now and you talk it all back to me. It's kind of like, you know, at the top of the show when I gave you an introduction, you, when you hear somebody else mm-hmm. say it, you know, it's just like, man, how are you not able to, you know, how is, how is all this not able to, to make you buckle, right? To make your knees buckle. Um, and you're saying it to me now and that's what I'm wondering. Like, how did you continue to go back for four more deployments for crying out loud? Like, it's it, it just becomes, it, it seems like a lot. And I know, and the only reason I'm focused on the emotional angle of this is because in the regiment, you guys invest so much emotional energy, even though you never actually talk about it and acknowledge it, right? All the training you do together and everything you do next to each other, there's an emotional attachment that that grows whether you want it to or not. It can't not grow. And so there's an emotional attachment to everybody in the regiment, even like you said, guys you don't know personally. It's all emotional because you know exactly what that person had to do to stand there and be in that same formation. And that, you know, takes its toll. It doesn't. Well, what is that? It's really com- compartmentalization, right? right. Which is, yeah. you know, hor- horrific to do. And so who we, mm-hmm. who we take it out on in terms of emotionally um, is one, we, we don't discuss it uh, amongst each other very often. Um, and because we don't discuss it with folks that were around every day, we will then go home and not discuss it. So who has suffered the most during my service, um, due to what I've seen, Nicole Maine, my wife, like it's not even close. 
it's not even close, special operations for all the things that we do right with the extra um, funding and, and opportunities that we have in human performance um, and, and the coaches and now what we call cognitive performance coaches that are generally co-located at the gym so they can, you know, be seen and talked to. And we've got rates of folks seeing these cognitive coaches through the roof. That's all great. But we take that home and it is it is hardest at home. Our, our divorce rates across the military during the GWAT were pretty bad, but uh, among soft still remain higher um, than the than the general population. And, and part of it is because the stress we deal with, we don't we don't know how to talk through it. There's not time in the day to talk it through. Right. As you're doing work, you got to compartmentalize it and then you get home after a long day. Like, how do you properly unpack it? That's the hazard of the job. That's the hazard ground of being uh, a person of action and to wanting to be at the tip of the spear is there's not time to figure yourself out unless the institution recognizes it and kind of builds it. Yeah. And that that's what's hardest with the officer versus the NCO Corps. The officers can get time. We have it as part of our professional development and the most egregious thing that the Department of the Defense does is it does not invest in its non-commissioned officer corps the way it does its officers corps with that time where they can get the same level of decompression and services, right? We see it a little bit more in soft. The Ranger Regiment, you'd mentioned Ranger for Life. That's now a program of the 75th Ranger Regiment. Inside of that is Phalanx. And Phalanx is a program for those who want to continue to stay to, to, to continue to provide opportunities with the cognitive coaches, to provide additional education. Because we realize once we pre- prepare people to leave with additional education, well, what do you have to do while you're getting that education? You need time off work. You need decompression. You need time with family. So a little bit of a tangent there. Mark, like you, I'm very passionate no, about it, it, it because it's so in front of our face. You better be able to answer that question as a leader pretty quickly. So what did you do? Right. Like if you can't. So so what are you doing to ensure the mental health of your folks? Like, I don't care about the muscles. I can do that. We've got gyms for that. I got training time for that. Like, what are you doing for their you know, cognitive performance? I mean, for crying out loud, it took the Department of Defense 15, 16 years to realize that a year deployment boots on ground was too long. It took them 15 years for them to come to that realization, we watched the Air Force at four months, Marines at six, seven months, soft, six, seven months. Everybody else is doing six, seven months. The Army's like, nope, year, boots on ground. Nobody else does anything. That's it. And you know what? Oh, stop loss. We'll extend you while we're here. Like, no. <laughs> Again, did we know? We didn't know what we didn't know back then. And we didn't know how many mental struggles we were going to walk into, right? So, in fairness to the DOD, you know, when I had deployed for the first time in 2005, There was no thought of not doing a year simply because of mental health wasn't a thing. Like we didn't, you really got to get post 2010, but still it took them another five years. Um, Still when PTSD was a thing that we all knew of by 2010, we, you know, 2007, 2008, it started coming out in the ethos that PTSD was real and it was a thing. And it just, you know, they're they're painfully slow in everything that they do uh, other than making uniform change, you know, which even at that, takes seven years to implement. So, neither here nor there. But uh, your tax dollars, right? Hey, say lovey. Uh, let me ask you. You mentioned just a moment ago. Biggest difference between officers and NCOs when when it comes to leading, and it comes to leading in combat for you. 
outside of being in charge, what was the biggest difference being the officer side of it versus the NCO? Well, just because of my progression, right, where as a squad leader, then a platoon leader, I mean, it's just, it just more responsibility. I think people would probably know a little bit about me. Like the care for an individual is pretty, pretty paramount. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really why I probably maxed out the best I could be for the Army as a company commander because that's about the, the time where I could actually know everybody. And so there was so much joy in that job because I could – you know, about 250 folks at a HHC, 120 uh, and a line company. That's about where I could pretty much max out knowing people, knowing reenlistments, knowing families, all the all these all these uh, type of things. But I will tell you, I, I just took everything that I learned at Ranger Regiment. Like I, I had mentioned, it's not about the fact that I was around a bunch of people with the Hall of Fame, but, you know, the I was squad leaders with the current um, regimental sergeant major. I was squad leaders with the previous regimental sergeant major. Um, and, and both of those folks are responsible for expanding the Ranger for Life program, right? Taking care of our people, people first. Um, so I really felt as I moved up, just more of a responsibility for the people. It is not hard to train. It is not hard for me to do training management. It is not hard to do professional development. The hardest part of having more people as an officer was to try to impart, like you actually need to care for these people Yeah, because it's based on someone's background. Isn't that kind of a, you got to care for your soldiers. <laughs> okay. Well, if Bobby comes from, Bobby just left home. He decided to leave home to join the army. And do you know why he left home? He doesn't know his dad. His mom wasn't in the best situation. He decided, decided to leave to get away, and now you're going to tell somebody who's two years older than Bobby that he needs to care for him? Like, that's tough. So I'm not trying to come off as, like, the biggest empathetic, you know, nicest guy in the world, but that's where the struggle is once you realize that. Like, why aren't things getting done? We're dealing with imperfect people who are extremely young, expecting a level of professionalism that you would expect in the professional world from folks who are in not just trained, yeah. but specially selected. Mm-hmm. We, we train who we get. We don't choose who we train. Boy, life would be right. easier in our military if we could. <laughs> yeah, well, in, any, in any organization, right? That's true, like in, yes. any, in, uh, and, and, and what do you find for high-performing organizations? Where are they spending all their money, all their time? Yeah. Right? It's, it's in the recruitment and yeah. development. Yeah. 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 There you go. Um, and to your point, you know, and – the more senior I've gotten, the more I try to spend time doing this, although it gets increasingly more difficult because you have to go report to everybody and everybody has to report to you, and that requires time, right? Um, but it's just like you said, just talk to people. Like the only way to know why Bobby enlisted is to ask them and, and show that genuine care and concern like, you know, hey, special so-and-so, you know? How's your family? Oh, yeah, my dad's gone and, you know, I only my mom. Oh, really? I'm, I'm sorry. What happened? You know, like having that conversation connects you to them and at least says for a moment that you give a rip enough to ask. Uh, and I think that is a component of leadership nowadays um, that is missing because we're so focused on phones and technology and everything else. And uh, we're missing that human component that ultimately connects us um, and that ultimately makes us want to 
fight for the person next to us. Like it, it goes back to that whole thing of uh, if you've ever heard anybody who's got who's received the Medal of Honor, right? Whenever they talk about it, the general response is, "Well, they would have done it for me. I was just doing what any one of them would have done." Right? The only way they know any one of them would have done that for them is because they know them. It's not because they know how to clear uh, an entryway or set a breach on a door or, you know, how to work through a a, a room and clear it. That's not the reason that they think they would have done it for them. The reason they think they would have done it for them is because they know them and they trust them. And that only comes through conversation, right? I, I, I can trust a leader to make a smart decision. That doesn't mean I trust a leader to do what's best for me. And those are different things. And I think that's where we struggled, right, on our deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan mm-hmm. later. And you know, answering the why question. This goes to the psychology too. And I, what ends up happening with a lot of IEDs with multiple deployments is that we start saying, "Well, you know, what's your job? To bring everybody home alive? To fight for your uh, buddy on your right and left?" And I will tell you, psychologically, that is horrific. That is one hundred percent. Gonna, can, that will only work and you will only feel better if exactly what you say happens. If not, there is nothing but guilt. You know, profession of arms. And I'm sorry that they got AKs and flip-flops and battery-operated IEDs. All right, but we're on their land fighting for something that we want, whether it be revenge, whether it be democracy, whether it be a steadier, you know, um, uh, nation in an area that we care about. Okay. But when I'm fighting for my guy right and left and he or she gets hurt, that's now my responsibility. But is it like, is it real or, or was that war? And so that was, that's what I struggle with. And that's where I try to, I mean, I'm not clinical, so I don't try to be a clinical physician with folks, but as I'm kind of trying to triage, even in helping folks in transition where they're at mentally, you figure out where do they feel the, their responsibility in some of these type of events. And you just have to sometime reshape the canvas for them. <laughs> you know, you, you didn't buy your own plane ticket to Iraq. You, you didn't train yourself. You know, you were kind of told what to do. Did you do the best you could do? Now, if they didn't do the best they could do, that's a little bit different, right? If there's fear there and they didn't act, okay, that's a different set of circumstances. But the majority of folks, that's not what it is. Right. IEDs just happen. We have billions of dollars of technology on top of these vehicles to stop them. And they still happen. Yeah. Right. So when you when you choose to go somewhere and you start off your day by chambering rounds, it's a it's a just a damn dangerous profession that you chose chose to do. Um, Billions of dollars to detect these things all made by the lowest bidder. So that's why they work so well. All the time. Anyway, uh, remember the jammers? Did you did your jammer ever actually work? It got jammed a lot. Yeah, all it did was jam up my communications. All it did was <laughs> prevent my radio from working. Like, yeah, it, it, I mean, people would turn off turn, their jammers to be able to use their radio, right? But turn right, on the jammer because it's supposed to stop the IED. Boom! No, nope, that didn't work. Or at least I can call somebody. Oh wait, sorry. Turn off the jammer first. Always thought that would have been part of the pretest, right? Like a part of the development. Like maybe we put all this stuff together uh, before. Tony, I, I shit you not. I can't tell it. you a number of uh, how many times I said 
F it. Just leave the damn thing off, okay? I'd rather be able to talk I know, to right? base. I'd rather be able to talk to base when something goes wrong because at least if I need reinforcements, I can call for them, right? Like, it, it just... Anyway, I don't know how we got down that... Yeah, lowest bitter. That's how we got down that rabbit hole. Sorry, I apologize. Nonetheless. <laughs> um, you end up back in the regiment, um, and... Is this sort of where you ultimately wanted to be, or was it more like serendipity that you got back home, so to speak? I wasn't quite sure, honestly. And I don't mean this. This will sound highfalutin, but I'm just going to like, I didn't know if I was good enough. That Sean Daniel guy I mentioned, mm-hmm. as my company commander, I was like, I could never work for this guy. right? And I didn't get to come back as a platoon leader because we were at war and it really wasn't a, a thing that I, I wanted to stay with my unit at that time. Um, and so... I didn't think I was good enough um, for a while. And then when it came time as a captain, I would have been a company commander. I'm like, I'm not Sean Daniel. Holy cow. You know, and at this time, Sean's doing doing great things in the special operations and, and, and conventional side. Um, but there was always that ping. There, there was that always that desire. And I think I put my packet in about as late as I could. Um, to come back. And that self-doubt, that Irish guild I was talking, like it's a thing. It's it's truly thing. It wasn't because I was humble. It was like I just didn't know if I could be good enough. Like I'm, there are great and talented people all across the Department of Defense. But what makes Rangers, I think, a, li- a little bit different, and I don't want to say all soft, but specifically, is just the reps. I, I don't think people understand. Sure, we would go out on a on an operation in Afghanistan. I wouldn't have air cover, right? Like you wouldn't have air air cover. You would just you know if you'd go out. And if there was some, and, and you knew the contingencies to be able to request, and if if you needed it, right? But you you'd go out sometimes without air cover, with without the saying, so always within the golden hour for medical care. I got it. Well, as you're doing that as a platoon leader, some kid who comes to Ranger Regiment, has got an FO controlling three lines of ISR, right? Multiple fixed wing platforms, right, and all these different things. And so, what you know and what you experience, it's just more. Okay. Other army lieutenants can come and learn that, but they don't get the damn reps. Right. Sure. Right. And so when I came in, I remember when I went through Ranger Assessment and Selection uh, Program 2, that's what senior NCOs and officers go through. And we had a field problem that was pretty, pretty intense. And I will tell you, they were using lingo. I'm like, I'm screwed. Like I haven't experienced, like for them, it was all common, right? They're calling platforms by platform names. I don't even know what they do. I don't know their capabilities. I never experienced them maybe read about them in a general dynamics brochure. Like, I don't know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> and, and, and so when I actually do make it back, I become the air officer. And I, I will tell you from, from day one, I was extremely thankful to be there and my ears and my eyes were wide open. And it's just been, it, it was just amazing um, to be back. A harder adjustment for you, adjusting to the conventional forces and the mentality there we're coming back to a Ranger regiment, given more rank, different position, and the the swath of knowledge that you needed to have that you didn't. Back to the Ranger regiment because the Ranger regiment is the Army, right? And it was very easy to go back with a little bit of knowledge. I would be a platoon leader who was a squad leader in the Ranger regiment. My hardest relationship, and I was blessed, was just managing with my platoon sergeant. That very first night, I'm like, I'm going to try to run this platoon, and I know that I'm going to, and I know that's not my job. Just correct me in private because I'm going to do it. It's my personality and we'll work through it. And we did. And we did a great job. 
together, I think. So I thank Andy St- Stenbridge for that, um, for that opportunity. But come back to the Ranger Regiment. That's a 10-year gap. So remember I said, you know, we were in Afghanistan for those first couple of times trying to figure out what we're doing. We're on Haditha Dam with GMVs and trying to figure out what we're doing. Um, and 10 years later, my buddies, the person who put me through the senior non-commissioned officer for the Ranger Assessment and Selection Program when I went through, um, Tyson Crosby, he was a private in my platoon. That was his first break in that training job for Ranger Regiment. He had been Charlie Company 375 for 15 years with 18 deployments. Whoa. So what the hell? Like, I knew some stuff, right? And, like, a lot of my buddies, like, they didn't take a break till the Sergeant First Class rank. So they were everywhere from specialist to Sergeant First Class, you know, a, a, a nice 10, 12-year swath. You deploy, you know, basically every nine months or so, maybe. Wow. So it was very hard to come back. And there, there is a little bit difference in terms of the intelligence assets and what you're responsible for. Right. Right. And anybody on conventional uh, forces, they do not want to hear about soft and our intelligence and, you know, the, the things that they were made to do based on our operations sometimes. Mm-hmm. Right. But it was just that access to that. Like that was, man, with 10 year gap, that was difficult. That was, that was, that was very, that, it was, it was humbling is a very fair way to put it. Very humbling to come in. Not to ask a morbid question, but I'm just curious. Um, you get back to the regiment uh, and you start catching up with people who you knew, this, that, and the other. Did you find out you had lost more guys from the regiment that, you know, you didn't know that they had been killed or anything like that? So what, what I find is the number of guys who've been hurt, uh, seriously wounded, or killed once they left regiment but still stayed in. Oh, wow. See, I remember our, our folks – you know, there, there. It's a pyramid. You know, Ranger. Mm-hmm. There's only so many spots, and if you want to stay in the military, you're going to go out to conventional forces. And if, and, and generally, either you know, our our folks are kind of known from for leading for the front. We're very, you know, that's part of our culture, right? So, um, you know, I would I would go to different, you know, you go to different cops through Iraq, and you're like, oh, platoon leader and Ranger regiment. You know, like you, you would see that sergeant for, you know what I mean? You see sergeant first class, like, oh, I had time in Ranger Regiment. That's where, yeah, my, my, my friends um, who, who were close to me, and like I said, uh, Mike Hollander, um, Doc Hollander. Uh, but, but other than that, it, it, it became folks, uh, Jared Huey in Afghanistan. He, he was our supply guy, became an infantry officer in the National Guard, died in Afghanistan, a roadside IED. Right. So um, that that's kind of what I saw more than that. Not the guys who were there. Right. Right. Per se. It was it, it was those guys. Um, after Ranger Regiment, you head out to be a PAO, public affairs officer, which clearly, I mean, now we see this here as you're talking to me suits you. It's it's kind of a part of your nature. But that mm-hmm. is a dramatic pivot. Forget conventional forces going to the PAO world and the conventional forces is pivot on pivot. Well, and especially in a place like Ranger Regiment where, it, you know, you'll still to this day have people saying, like, why do we have a PAO? <laughs> refer, refer everything to USASOC. We'll take our own pictures for our sit reps um, and, and, and we'll, we'll be good. And I really, when I, like I said, that EWO PAO thing, like it provided me a lot of flexibility. 
right? It provided me a lot of flexibility. We had a regimental commander at the time who did want to tell the regiment's story, did, did want to use the public affairs for recruiting, right? So we, we were going to reach out to a bigger external audience. Usually most of our um, efforts are for internal internal audiences. And so I, I, was, I was blessed to be there at, at the right time with a great opportunity. And so here I am, a captain getting ready to be a major. And those every and Charlie once again that Charlie Company crew at that time we I think had uh, three of the four battalion ops sergeant majors, right? So I always had an opportunity as an officer and be careful being an officer with a good idea in Ranger Regiment, let alone the Army, but let alone in Ranger Regiment. This Ranger for Life thing, it all happened after I talked to all those ops sergeant majors. I did not even come up. I did not develop that thing in a vacuum. I made sure that I had buy-in from senior folks before doing it. And so, you know, becoming a PAO, well, as you know, you better show value right away or you will be marginalized. So it, it did help to be on regimental staff, not come in to soft from the outside and have an idea of the culture of the organization. And I, I knew how important the internal products were as well. Um, so, it was uh, it, it was a it was a tough three years um, for sure. It, it, it was rowing because you had all the um, Oconus responsibilities, uh, deployment responsibilities on top of of that. But we built a we built a really great infrastructure, and I'm very proud of what we did. How do you know when it's time for your career to be over? When the med board happened, mm-hmm. that was when. And honestly, the strain, every, every couple is different. Um, but that med board was a blessing for my marriage. Right. No, no doubt, no doubt in the world. I would have had that. I would have had to make that. Actually, I really pretty much made the choice between, you know, what people consider success as a career in my family. Um, and I choose, chose family. I would also say though, I know, I knew from being in Ranger Regiment that I maxed out my talents as a company commander. Like I, I, I admit it. Like I know my aptitude. I think self-awareness is kind of like one of my, you asked me what one of my strengths is. I think it's self-awareness, right? Like I like to be down in the, in the, in the weeds of things. You can't do that as a really good field grade. You've got to be happy and show probably more trust than I show, to be honest with you, even though I try to develop that. So that, that, that's when. And so I spent the last Having that last five and a half years of my career as a PAO with the commander's ear because of my unique situation, or at least access to the commander and executive officers and the staff, um, I feel like I was able to feel very comfortable with the level of candor that I was given uh, or was able to give or or guidance. Um, And when I received guidance, to be able to respond to it and not just say, yes, sir, because I was worried about I, I. I didn't care about an OER my last five years in the army. Like that's, and, and I know you're not supposed to care, but you also should care because it is the institution you're a part of. Yeah. Right. I mean, I was able to just be like, I'm in Ranger Regiment. These, these people are producing the next battalion commanders, right? Like every single dude I worked with is a, is a battalion commander. If they stayed in like infantry battalion commander, three of my friends in the last two weeks all took their battalions. You know, it's awesome to see. Right. I know where I rack and stack. Just do a job. Just do what's right for range regiment. So like that stress was off. The only stress was just, you know, my personal performance and wanting to do well for, for the organization. 
when you leave the Ranger Regiment for good uh, and you retire, you know, and you know that it's over, uh, is there a part of you that feels different? Well, so I was lucky. I was able to go to SOCOM for my last three years. Okay. And then with that, I had a deployment to uh, Afghanistan with a Clemson grad as a commander of uh, uh, Sajid F.A., uh, Major Gen- General uh, Jim Linder. He's mm-hmm. able to bring Marty Scovlin over two times oh, from Marty uh, Scovlin, Black Rifle former, Coffee uh, Company. Former Hazard Ground guest, Marty Scovlin. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Right. And and, and so it was uh, got my last operation. The last time I left the wire, got in a one-way firefight, which was fantastic. Um, uh in Afghanistan. So just absolutely, absolutely, absolutely blessed. But I'll, to answer your question directly, two months ago now, maybe a month ago, I live in Columbus, Georgia. Mm-hmm. I live where, where Fort Benning is at. It took me a year and a half to, with people knowing that I was around to step foot back at Ranger Regiment. Why? Because I'm not one of them. Okay. I've been helping rangers in transition as a volunteer or full-time job for eight years. I have the Ranger Outreach Center in Columbus, Georgia, a partnership with St. Luke United Methodist Church. And it took me a year and a half to go roughly five miles. What was the motivation everybody for you to finally hugged go me back? And said, it's great to see you. What, what, what was the impetus? What pushed you over the edge to finally do it after 18 months? The time. You know, like time heals all wounds. Mm-hmm. And, and, but it wasn't that I was wounded. It's just when I talk to you about that Irish guilt and not being good enough, when all of your peers or when all the people you work for are, are command sergeants major or now general officers and all of your peers are at the top of their profession, like I knew where I stood. And the, I never wanted to feel and be one of those local hangers on. When you're a public affairs officer or ranger regiment, you work with all the nonprofits as well. That's generally something that, that, that we do. That might, and maybe it's changed culturally, but generally there's that interaction with the public, nonprofits, right? And, and I would see people who were hanging on. And I, I really just personally didn't want to be perceived as someone who was hanging on. I always wanted to represent the, the regiment publicly, because no, usually folks don't do it for the regiment, but, but sure. do it publicly. But actually coming coming back to the heart, it was difficult. Did you know that you wanted to go into the business of helping Rangers post-military right after you got out? Or did it take a little while to find your way? I mean, obviously, again, I mentioned at the top, you work with Gallon for you and, and now Ranger for mm-hmm. Life. So how does all that come about? And is that what you know you wanted to do? I, I don't know it. So in 2017, as I'm leaving Ranger Regiment, you know, we had started doing a uh, article series called Ranger for Life. I was trying to show that service in the Ranger Regiment makes good human beings, right? Ah. I think the biggest gap in the military is we don't use our people to tell the story. We use faces and pictures, but we are scared to death of maybe a senior official getting in trouble or after they get out, a senior official getting to a high position and getting in trouble. And it's like we have that whole Hall of Fame standard, right? Like, until you're in, we can't talk about you. People are our pacing item. We should. So I created that Ranger for Life thing, that series that, that, that we would talk about people. Because I did that, I started working with the nonprofits. And that's when I learned of Gallant Few. So I volunteered with Gallant Few and several other nonprofits. 
and my time. I probably went above. I always worked with the with the Jag, and I'm not doing a CYA right now, but I always worked with the Jag. But like, I tried to get involved with as many of their projects as as possible. But in 2017, when I was getting out, I decided to come back to Columbus, Georgia, with my wife to run our church's military ministry. Because in, in Fort Benning, I, I believe that there is a need. Yeah. We, we get to SOCOM. I continue to volunteer with different organizations. And I start looking at, you know, we're going to live in Columbus, Georgia. It's not Atlanta, right? Like it's a, it's a, it's a cheaper cheaper uh, 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 standard of living kind of kind of needed for, for great things. We had a great charter high school here. Um, and, and so I started looking at those things. I was like, I could do nonprofit work. And sometimes you think uh, you, you cancel yourself out of nonprofit work because it's that there's no profit in nonprofit if you if if you do it right per se. Like you know what I mean? There's mm-hmm. you know personally that that's not why you're what, what you're motivated by. Um, but the more I, I helped the guys, and I realized, you know what? There's a gap here, and I'm able to fill it, and I'm uniquely able to fill it. And that's what we do. So whether it be on Fort Benning or here at the Ranger Outreach Center, we meet with Rangers and um, all soldiers because that's what we have primarily here at Fort Benning soldiers um, in their transition window. And we try to just talk them through a morally transition and, and, and what it will take. And right. what we find is the jobs, everyone's got purposeful jobs, those type of things. Right. A lot of folks do that. That to me, that's easy. Once, once I get somebody to walk through the door to say they want help, most of the work's done for the job. Yeah, um, it, It's understanding the decision-making calculus, using their critical skills uh, program fellowship, that six-month fellowship. It's not just the VA claim. It's the introduction to the VA system, what it does, how you can use the benefits afforded to you, how you look at those benefits and where you want to live by state, already knowing benefits that are in existing states, understanding what the National Guard can do for you. There's not been one ranger who gets out after a three or four year enlistment um, that isn't for medical, right? So traditional honorary discharge that I do not recommend the guard to. And I tell them it is in your best interest because you are providing yourself contingency plans and stability to stop. I said, what happens if you go to your job and you, and you don't like it? Like there's a lot of other things here with insurances and things that you're not thinking about. I want to give you the flexibility through the guard to be able to do so many of these things. First time they've heard it, right? Because if I'm not a ranger, I don't want to do it. So any, anywho, yeah. So yeah. so that's that's kind of where we're at. And and finances is is the other kind of pillar where we where we hang our hat as well. Well look, hey, shameless plug, if you want to tell more stories, uh this place to do it right here. See, Hazard Ground, that's us. All about telling stories. So send send them our way and we'll help you tell all the stories we can. Um when you end up helping a ranger fix themselves or at least put them on a path for success going forward. Uh, is there a comparative feeling to anything you did in service? Is it, is it as exhilarating as jumping out of a helicopter or a plane or uh, whatever into a, into a combat zone? Like, what is that feeling like for you? I like doing a reenlistment. It, it's, it's like they're, they're, they're a part of the team. Like they, they listen to the message mm-hmm. Right, they're believing what they're hearing. Um, that there's trust there, and like, oh, okay, I get it. So, and we we've been blessed. You know, if someone comes to us more than six months um, prior to 
uh, ETS or retirement, we have a 100% job placement rate or acceptance into the, the field of study. And it's nothing that we do special. You know, I think service members need to understand you have skills and tools that people want. The biggest thing you need to do is just start early. And you'll see those options. And, you know, like I said, if I get you to the door, you've already asked for help, right? Yes, there's the installation centers. Okay, and I understand that. However, the installation centers, in reality, are training centers for a transition. Right? And, and, and their pacing item is a checklist signed that you have completed your training to do what you wanted to do. Right? It is not your actual employment or acceptance. You can pass and be considered a, a success with a plan in your transition. Right? That, that, that's a gap. Right? No university says that when you graduate, you have a potential to get a job. They will tell you the exact stat of the number of graduates who have a full-time job within six months of getting out. That's their pacing item. The person put into numbers. Right, wow. That's what we do, and that's what's lacking in the DOD right now. Can you tell a difference between rangers who are getting out now and – guys you serve with like is the ranger regiment is is being a ranger and i know the standards haven't changed but the corporate culture of the military has changed and i don't think anybody could have prevented that and that's not necessarily a bad thing i don't say it as a pejorative i think every organization needs to adapt and change with what is going on around them um you can't just stay stagnant and so from that standpoint can you tell there's a difference between 2022 rangers and 2002 rangers you can in terms of if they're a staff sergeant and above, generally just – and so what it comes down more is, is life skills. Mm-hmm. So if, 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 you're, if you're a staff sergeant above, you've, been, you've had some experience with the failings program. You've probably touched and felt it um, a little bit more in some of those uh, specialties um, that, that are there to support the rangers. But – at the end of the end of the day, when I'm talking to someone who is in their 20s, who hasn't had a quote unquote real job outside of the army, um, they're ex- extremely similar, ex- and th- and that's why transition is so important. That that's why it's not just a buzzword anymore. It, it, it's it, it, it you need one on one mentorship. You have to understand where someone comes from before you try to try to help them. I always like to say, just like the young man I, I met with today, like he, he's living proof. I've got job security. Right. I mean, right. He, he joined, he joined the army for a reason. He wanted, kind of wanted to get away. Now he's going back in. So now he's actually behind his peers who've been doing civilian work. Right. So yeah, that's interesting. It's, uh, and again, rangerforlife.com is the, uh, is the website. If you're interested in, uh, in, in taking part and obviously again, um, there's other ways to support if you are in a ranger, I assume, correct? Well, 100%. So our national transition director for Gallant Few, Gallant mm-hmm. Few's been around for 11 years, founded by a former um, first ranger battalion ranger, Carl Monger, established because we realized that unless you're the regimental commander or the regimental command sergeant major, you probably didn't get out with your position um, and, and left feeling much like I just described a little while ago, as if you had something that you didn't complete. You're no longer a part of the team. That's why Carl founded, founded Gallant Few. It's to make people know that they, they have worth and they have hope 
and they have purpose. So through there, any any veteran can become part of our ecosystem, uh, take part of our Vet Star coaching. If if you are a service member, um, transition as well. And Gallup Few enables me to do and continue to develop the the Ranger for Life um, um, program as well. Well, look again. Uh, there's so much more to the story that we didn't even get to. Um, I, I know you and I could spend hours and hours and hours going through it all. And I'd love to do it. And I'm sure we will get to do it. But uh, as far as the uh, the show is concerned, uh, we'll, we'll put a bow on things. But also, you are actually hosting a podcast as well, right? I, I do. I do. It's called you can a talk about podcast. It. It's this, not, podcasts aren't proprietary. I'm, they can listen to both mine and yours. So tell us about well, it. Well, I'll tell you wh- why I do it. I don't know about you, Mark. I mean, we've talked about it a little bit, but it, it, it's, it's therapy. Sure. Right? Like being able to tell your story. Everybody has a story. People who've listened this far um, need to get back to work probably. But people who've listened this far in this podcast know that like people have value. An yeah. individual has value to a community. And so by telling your story, there's that twinkle, there's that chance that someone's going to hear it and connect with you. Mm-hmm. That's why I do the podcast. Man, okay. I'm, I, and I, I want to grow it and it's we're going to try to. Oh. But it's but it's that that is the rationale. And then what I also use it for is when I do have somebody on. That's how I make connections. So there's LinkedIn, there's email, there's phones. But when we provide Rangers mentors, it's like, hey, before you talk to this person, go look and see what they have to say. So nearly everyone that I bring on is somebody that in one one way, shape or another is helping our Rangers and service members in transition. That's awesome. That's really good. So, again, uh, so much to thank you for just your time uh, sharing everything personal and otherwise and, and your continued service not only to, to Rangers, but to, to all military folks. I mean, look, you're, you're one of those folks out there who's a resource in our veterans community and, and willing to go the extra mile to help out veterans with anything. And I think that's that's unique and it's special. We've become a very crowded space of uh, good, bad, or indifferent. And, and not to say anybody has nefarious intentions, but uh, th- there are a certain amount of genuine people in this world uh, who are looking to truly do better. And I, and I know you well enough to know that you're one of them. And I certainly thank you for for always having that at the forefront and that being the driving force behind what you do for Gallant Few and Ranger for Life. So uh, it has been amazing talking to you as always. I know we will stay in touch, you and I. Obviously, we have a lot of work to do together uh, between both of our, our organizations. But, uh, again, I can't thank you enough for everything, and it's certainly been a blast having you here. Yeah, Mark, thanks for everything that you're doing. It's much appreciated. Rangers lead the way. Right. Tony Main, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. You've been listening to Killcliff's Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. 